episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of christiangospelchurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, this is, again, one of the most interesting series we've got into because the, the New Apostolic Reformation just blows your mind. Last episode, I asked, what were they thinking? And I think today, I, I don't know if there's a way to to accelerate that thought, but you take a step back and you, what were they thinking? We're getting into some history that I have semi you know, inside knowledge on because I have spoken with this person that we're going to talk about today multiple times. And it blew my mind just talking to him because in our sect of the message, we were so disconnected from it as though these figures were just casual names that <laughs> that were only sent by God to point to us, to point to the prophet as our deliverer or as our <laughs> Moses that led God's people out into heaven. So I, I'm excited to get into this, but the the history here and the connections between William Branham and the guy we're about to mention is just unbelievable. Yeah. So in our last episode, we looked at um, especially Kenneth Hagin and Tommy Osborne um, and the Word of Faith movement, uh, which is a critical link between you know, the latter reign, William Branham, and the New Apostolic Reformation today. And today, in this episode, we're going to talk about another link um, coming out of William Branham, the message latter reign, to New Apostolic Reformation. And this one um, is is probably the key bridge to the largest factions actually coming out of latter reign. And we're going to be talking about a man named Paul Cain. And, you know, the Word of Faith movement is big, it's splashy. But in terms of just sheer numbers of people, the movements that Paul Cain influenced are much, much larger. Paul Cain's another man who stayed also with William Branham to the very end of his life, uh, up through 1965. And as we've mentioned in previous episodes, Paul Cain was actually a closeted homosexual in those years. Um, After 1957, Paul Cain was probably the most frequent evangelist to still be touring and preaching alongside William Branham. And he also served as William Branham's proxy quite a lot, uh, going to places on his behalf and speaking on his behalf. And the two men were really very, very close. Paul Kane even billed himself as another William Branham, right? Like he, he literally, <laughs> I'm another William Branham, right? Like that's how he billed himself in his advertisements. So they were two peas in a pod. He was very, very much a man in the mold of William Branham. Um, he partnered himself with William Branham in, patterned himself, I should say, after William Branham in almost every way. And in later years, he did try to downplay his connections to William Branham, but make no mistake, they were very, very close. Paul Kane even moved to Arizona when all the other pe- message people started moving there in 1963, uh, the year that message people believe William Branham became God incarnate. So he was very much a follower of William Branham. Yeah. 
I've mentioned it a few times on the show and other interviews that I've had. And um, <clears throat> I've spoken with Paul Kane multiple times. I can't say everything that he told me yet, but <laughs> let's just say that they were some very interesting conversations, Charles. And what's, what's really fascinating is the fact that it wasn't me contacting him. In fact, I had really no idea who this guy even was and until he reached out to me. He's the one who, <laughs> who started this conversation, this series of conversations with me. And it wasn't until I began publishing William Branham's Deep Connections to White Supremacy, that was the point in which he started reaching out, and he, he was very insistent <laughs> that he talk to me. And um, again, I can't say everything that he said, but what I can say is that he strongly affirmed what you just said. He was William Branham's proxy into places that William Branham could not go into. He was, <clears throat> whenever William Branham was asked to come hold a big revival at some place, if William Branham had a scheduling conflict or if he was not allowed into that country, it was Paul Kane that William Branham sent. Paul Kane was basically the one who's spreading the message of William Branham into these places. And, you know, after William Branham died, this looked much differently. It was no longer the message of Branham. It became the message of Kane. But there was a point in time, Charles, in which Paul Kane was the mouthpiece for William Branham. And I'm to go. I knew that I was to go in July to Europe. Well, that night, uh, it seemed I was after midnight, the telephone rang, and uh, Brother William Branham uh, was calling, and he was in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And so, uh, after a little small talk, he said, Brother Paul, uh, I'll get right to the reason I'm calling. He said, how would you like to go to Europe? And I said, well, you know, it took me by surprise. And I said, to Europe? Did I hear you right? And he said, yes, how would you like to go to Europe? And here, you think you've arrived, you think you know everything by now. And uh, I didn't even know that the Lord was setting me up. And so I said, uh, well, I said, I'd, uh, I, I think I'd like to go to Europe. I said, this is kind of unique. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, John. Um, he would... Um... <clears throat> If William Branham got sick or something and couldn't meet, make a meeting, Paul Kane tended to be his fill-in, his substitute. Um, and what you'd see a lot of times is William Branham would schedule week-long meetings or even two-week-long two meetings, and he would go do the first part, and then him and Paul Kane would overlap in the middle, and then Paul Kane would finish the revivals out. So he was... They were very active together for a lot of years. Um, they started doing that, I want to say, 1951 or 52, at least officially. Uh, and they did it very heavily after 1957. You know, it got more and more frequent through time as William Branham lost um, other key team members with the split with Voice of Healing. So Paul Kane stayed with him through all of that. Paul Kane stayed with him through all the latter rain splits. He stayed with him through the voice of healing splits. He stayed with him through all the sanctions from the denominations. You know, so he was a very loyal um, to William Branham. Manifested here, there, everywhere, all over the world. 
That's the reason the stadiums are going to be filled. That's the reason all the sports arenas and all of the meeting places are going to be filled. And the open fields in Africa and everywhere else are going to be filled with hundreds of thousands and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. It's because the glory of the Lord has come back to the earth to show forth the power and the glory of Almighty God in a wonderful outpouring called the true water rain. What Paul Cain was very famous for as a minister was his gift of discernment or his word of knowledge. People call it different things. And for him, his gift of discernment tended to be about the sins that people were committing. Okay, And uh, if you take time to honestly look at what he was doing, um, Paul Cain was actually a really very abusive person with with his with his revivalist style practices in his services he would confront people in front of the whole church he would accuse people of being adulterers and terrible things right there to their face on stage out of the blue right (laughs) in front of the whole congregation and he would get up in people's faces even unsuspecting people you know who are just bystanders and he'd call them names he'd say all kinds of things about them very very aggressive um style of the gifted discernment and you can find Paul Cain doing some of that stuff even on tape. And he would even do that just to random people, John, just sitting by and watching. And so he was really big on using his gift of discernment in play of fear tactics and intimidation, which, again, I think he learned some of that from William Branham. Definitely. <clears throat> I've been to churches of in the message cult from coast to coast, and it's a very common thing. They... You know, the message capitalizes on fear. With the fear of the mind, you create an invisible barrier between you and the outside world. And that's how they hold you captive, through fear. Well, the other element of fear is the fear that, uh, you know, fear of going to hell, but the fear of being persecuted. And they will attack you if they learn that there's anything that doesn't agree with the theology, you know, if... For instance, if a girl is going into school and she doesn't want to look like the Pentecostal holiness style and she dresses like other kids and goes to school, they will rail you in public. It's not just that they will take you in private and say, look, you're sinning and you need to change your dress code and become more like Christ. They will actually just nail you to the cross right there in front of the people so that you're fully embarrassed, you're fully shamed, and... It's, it's one step away from the Salem witch trials, Charles. But th- this was a thing that was happening in the message of William Branham. Paul Cain, is, he learned it from experience. He's, <laughs> he's in these meetings where they're doing this thing to the people, and it becomes a big part of his ministry. Now, I remember growing up in the message, John, and I had a fear of the preachers growing up. Were you afraid of preachers growing up? I was scared to death of the preachers growing up. <laughs> Um, and I can remember thinking, oh, if I get too close to the preacher, God's going to tell them all the bad things I ever did. Like the time I pulled my sister's hair or something, you know, the preacher's going to know I pulled my sister's hair. And so, and, and then the fear is the preacher's going to tell the whole church and shame and embarrass you in front of everybody. I, relive, yeah. I remember living in mortal fear of that as a child. 
Uh, because that that really is what we were trained to think the gift of discernment was, right? It was a gift for the preacher to know the bad things that people were doing. Yeah. So then they could expose you to the whole church, right? And I hate to say it, but that was very common in the message churches I come from and, and in the latter rain in general, I believe. Yeah. And the preacher would do that. He would just tell the whole church and shame and embarrass people. Um, yeah. Something else. And the leaders love shaming and embarrassing people publicly. And more often than not, it, it, that's the way their gift of discernment uh, and their word of knowledge tended to be used. Yeah. I lived on the other side of this because we were <laughs> we were the cult royalty. My grandfather was the head of the Branham Tabernacle. And so <clears throat> whenever whenever the pastor's getting my grandfather's getting up to speak and he's telling these stories that all shock and all the people, well, I lived the other side of it. I saw what was actually happening in these stories. Mm-hmm. And there were times whenever I'd be in other ministers' churches and they would get up and they would you know, use whatever spiritual claim that they had, that they had this inside knowledge of people. Well, no, man, I I was there. I know how they knew these things. And so I didn't have the same level of fear. What's funny is this was recently, I want to say this was like maybe end of last year, some people had escaped finally the mind control of the cult. And they came to me and they said they lived in fear of these men. It was it was as though they could peer into your very soul, just like William Branham. And they had all this inside knowledge. And this person said, I was going through some really, really difficult times. And, you know, admittedly, this person went, you know, was not living the message by message standards, it was a sin. By normal Christianity, it was not a sin. But they were struggling with it and they were pleading for help and you know, during the social media craze, they're talking about the struggles that they had openly on social media, seeking for help, seeking for comfort from other quote unquote Christians from the cult. Not long after it was posted on social media, the pastor goes, I have seen from God and you have done X, Y, and Z. Well, this person's like, no, man, you didn't see from God. You read my Facebook post. <laughs> I know, John, after I became a preacher, um, I discovered the same thing. And I was, I have to say, I was shocked when I discovered this. But they would get up, you know, and they would pretend that it's just a miraculous coincidence that they are <laughs> happen to preach about the sin that you committed. You know, like they would pretend like it's just, uh, you know, a word of knowledge or gift or something like that. Total coincidence. But I was in the back room when the tattletale came and told, right? Like... And I would hear all of these things, and and then I watch them get on the platform and pretend like it's some divine thing from God. And I'm at a certain point, you start to realize, oh my goodness, this is all it is, and this, yeah. and it's always this way, and it's probably always been that way, right? Like there, there isn't, it isn't legit, it isn't legit. It's it's tattletales <laughs> coming to tell on people, and then they pretend it's a word of knowledge or something, or yeah. it's inspired of God. And even worse, half the time it wasn't even true. It's just somebody hated somebody and wanted to throw them under the bus. I saw people destroyed. I mean, I saw people's lives literally destroyed with this kind of stuff. I mean, just someone come in and and make up a story and then the preacher can use that in a power play, right? Because public shaming and humiliation is one of the tools that these people use to control people through fear and then also make themselves look big, right? Like there's something special. And some people- Yeah, some people pretend like, you know, there's nothing wrong even with a preacher who acts that way. 
But the truth is, I mean, it's just wicked, ungodly behavior. You know, it's not an edifying use of a gift of, of, of discernment or a word of knowledge, right? Even if you had a legitimate gift, that's not the biblical way to use that gift, right? It's yeah. just, it's evil, right? And it's not even the biblical pattern for church discipline, right? To just randomly expose people and accuse people in front of the entire church. And a lot of times when it's not even true. So it, it's, it's, you heard the stuff even in the, in the Deborah Thibodeau interview, right? How Leo did it, right? That, that is case in point into how this stuff, they just make this stuff up and everybody believes they have this gift. So everyone believes what they say. It don't even matter if it's a lie. Everyone's going to believe what they say, right? And you're just yeah. a liar for not admitting to it. So it's, it's, it's really awful. abusive. Yeah. It's it's awful. I mean, <clears throat> if you just look at the Bible, this is not the way Jesus did it, man. <laughs> this, I know. This is not the thing that in, entices a sinner to be, you know, to put away the sin. This is not how it works. These men have truly learned the power of words, and they've learned how to abuse that power. I'm a firm believer of the power of words, and <laughs> Charles— I've I've thought long and hard, and there are only two words that describe what these men are doing when they do this. And I can't say it on here, but it starts with a B and an S. <laughs> I know, right? Like you look at the woman at the well. Jesus was in private with her when he told her that stuff. I mean, like it's not – yeah, it just don't work that way. But William Branham would pretend like, oh, let's do this publicly. Let me tell all yeah. your sins to the whole world publicly, right? Like that's not uh, – it's not okay. And William Branham and the Latter Rain Movement, they introduced these really wicked and abusive practices, and they totally abandoned the biblical models of church governance, church discipline, and they started abusing these gifts of the Spirit. I, like, I believe there's legitimate uses for these things in the church, but what they do with it is, is nothing but abuse of these gifts, right? And Paul Cain built his entire ministry on that sort of thing. Very sad. Very sad. Yeah. And it created a movement. I mean, <clears throat> again, when, when Paul Cain contacted me, I had no idea who this man was, and I had no idea the significance in American pseudo-Christianity, right? This man built this ministry on top of this thing, <clears throat> and it created a movement, and that movement heavily influenced the pseudo-Christian world. So for some reason, and I don't know why, I would love to know why. And if anybody out there knows why, please tell us why. But Paul Cain totally disappeared uh, when William Branham died. Just It's like he dropped off the face of the earth when William Branham died. The only thing I know for sure is that he was living in Phoenix, Arizona for some of that time. And which, again, it, I find it really weird that he moved to Arizona at the same time all the other deity people moved to Arizona, right? The same time Gene and Leo moved to Arizona, Paul Kane moved yeah. to Arizona, right? The same time all the stuff was going on at the park, Paul Kane had moved to Arizona. So it's just, it's unusual, and to me it's suspicious. Um, because Paul Kane definitely believed William Branham was a manifested son of God, just like Tommy Osborne did. You can even find Paul Kane pretty well saying that directly on tape, that he believed that um, William Branham was a manifested son of God. And Paul Cain eventually came to believe that he was himself a manifested summon of God. And he would do things where he would kind of pretend to be embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to be a manifested son of God. I don't really want to talk about it. I, And he was afraid. He'd act like he was afraid to operate at his full potential as a manifested son of God because he couldn't handle it. That was a fairly common 
thing that was going on with him when he would talk about that, but he's pretty direct in his testimonies about it, and he, he brought some of the most destructive Lateran teachings into his ministry, John. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I've thought too long and hard about the Arizona connection. Why did he move? Why are all of these men moving to Tucson, Phoenix, you know, in Arizona? It wasn't until I tried to dig into the government records of a quote-unquote nonprofit business <laughs> and trying to, you know, trying to dig up records. In Indiana, I can find everything about these guys. You go to Arizona, and it's a little bit different. The way the laws are written, it's, you know, it's like a little Cayman Islands. People want to put their money there because it's almost untouchable. You can't really see what's going on in these places. No comment. (laughs) (laughs) So here's something rather interesting too, John. (laughs) Here's something interesting. Uh, uh, two is about the, so that, that's some interesting stuff, John. Yeah. Um, I, I have some thoughts uh, around that as well, but I'll, I'll keep them, uh, in my head. <laughs> so here, here's something pretty interesting. Um, you know, in charismatic Christianity, a lot of them still believe in a watered down version of Malachi four, five, and six. They do. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and which originated in British Israelism. A lot of charismatics believe that the spirit of Elijah will come upon the corporate church in the last days. You kind of contrast that with the message because we believe it came on one person, William Branham, right? And so that charismatic version of Malachi 4, 5, and 6, that's something I have hunted high and low, John, to try and figure out exactly where that came from. Because the original Malachi 4, 5, and 6 comes out of British Israelism. Then through latter rain, it evolved into what we had in the message. And to the best of my knowledge, John, Paul Cain is the man who transitioned that Elijah prophecy from a single Elijah to the whole corporate church. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so... That idea that there's going to be a whole generation of Elijahs, um, I believe Paul Cain is Paul Cain is very likely the man who originated that teaching, and he did that in the years after William Branham died, while he was one of the Kansas City prophets. I've not been able to find another person preaching that before him, uh, and so that really leads me to believe that it's quite likely he is the one who originated that teaching. Uh, which came directly out of the message, which, again, we know we can trace it all the way came back out of British Israelism. So I find that incredibly interesting. And Mike Bickle and the other Kansas City prophets really popularized that that idea coming into the 1990s, which, again, I believe originated with Paul Kane, who who adapted it out of the theology of the message. Yeah, it's just really unbelievable because William Branham died, and all of these guys were promoting— like Paul Kane, who is who's William Branham's proxy. He's his, he's William Branham's mouthpiece for the message, the quote unquote message, which was the latter rain message. Well, after he died, most of the things that William Branham said died with him. Most of the prophecies that really required him to be alive died with him. And so all of these men try to take what was there and they transitioned it into this new thing. And it becomes a new prophecy. It doesn't even resemble the old one. But again, what were they thinking? These people who knew this, these people who had heard these prophecies, they said, oh, yeah, it's okay. We'll change it to this new thing and we'll go with you. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. 
one more little interesting tidbit about Paul Kane. Most of his really famous miracles from the healing revival days occurred at the Calvary Temple in Los Angeles, which was Leroy Copp's church. And I find that really interesting because we know that's the same place that some of William Branham's most famous miracles happened, like the Congressman Upshaw healing, right? Yeah. Which we know was a hoax. Um, and we have pretty decent evidence that, I mean, I think that Leroy Cop was involved in perpetrating, you know, going along and perpetrating some of these hoaxes. Um, and we have pretty solid evidence that Roy Davis was connected to that church as well, you know. Um, so there's possible Roy Davis connections here with Paul Kane's stuff going on there at, at that church. And so Leroy Cop, the pastor of that church, he was also vice chairman of the Foursquare denomination in evangelists. And very interestingly, he was mentally unstable, right? Um, he was hospitalized. He was in a sanatorium multiple times. And he was the man who served as the cooperating witness on the majority of Paul Kane's miracles that were published in Voice of Healing. So I, I find that pretty suspicious. If yeah, that's me. crazy. <laughs> I, and I'll never forget the first time <clears throat> that I saw he, <laughs> he had escaped from a sanitarium. These are men who, when William Branham was struggling the most, the cops, you take, you take the, what's it called, the 20th Century Prophet video, this is what picked William Branham back up off the ground. And these men are collaborating together to help help keep this thing from dying because it is a money train. And Paul Kane, again, when William Branham died, he he had to keep this money train going. And <clears throat> Leroy Cop, who's involved with this thing, Paul Cop, they're straight out of the Angelus Temple. This is the church that had Wesley Swift and had Gerald Winrod. I mean, these very horrific things were a backbone to their ministry. I'm not saying that they continued them by no means from what we can tell, but these guys were trained under this teaching very, very wrong, very strongly opposed to Christianity, what what they were brought up with. Well, these are the same guys who are taking William Branham and lifting him up. And now after Branham dies, these guys do the same thing with Paul Kane. So I mentioned that Calvary Temple in Los Angeles because I am pretty sure that's where Paul Kane met Chuck Smith and started working with him. And so Chuck Smith was Paul Kane's campaign manager and was alongside Paul Kane through a lot of the healing revival years and latter rain years. And after 1965, when Paul Kane disappeared for that period of time, Chuck Smith took over a, a relatively small church called Calvary Chapel. And I've tried to put the pieces together. I'm not sure about this. It could be that that Calvary Chapel was a continuation of Leroy Cop's church. I've not been able to quite perfectly figure that out, so I, I'm not sure. I, I would like to find more pieces, but I believe it is likely that Chuck Smith's Calvary Chapel was a continuation of Leroy Cop's Calvary Temple. And Calvary Chapel grew into a really massive charismatic denomination under Chuck Smith's leadership. And one interesting thing about Calvary Chapel, um, too, when the shepherding movement imploded and broke up, shepherding movement, that's the cult that Derek Prince and Ern Baxter and Don Basham and those guys created. When it broke up after all the abuses that happened in the shepherding movement, there was um, a lot of the shepherding church, shepherding movement churches 
exited and merged into Calvary Chapel. So Calvary Chapel is descended from two of the main branches of the latter reign in that way. Uh, and Calvary Chapel is a huge, huge group that was influenced quite a bit by Paul Kane via Chuck Smith. And uh, l- let me just say here, not every group we're talking about in these podcasts is a bad group. And I really don't have any bad thing to say about Calvary Chapel. I just want to put that out there um, today. You know, Chuck Smith predicted the end of the world and the week of Daniel would start, I think, in 1981. And, of course, that didn't happen. <laughs> and after that didn't happen, it seems like Calvary Chapel started to reform itself in a lot of ways, honestly. And they took when they took in the refugees from the shepherding movement, I think that brought them maybe some awareness of the dangers of the Latter Rain movement. And as far as I know, Calvary Chapel today has rejected a lot of the most dangerous cultic elements of the Latter Rain and have largely reformed, so... You know, just in case, you know, Mike Winger or somebody like that ever listened to this. I want to be clear, I'm not throwing a Calvary Chapel under the bus, <laughs> but this is where Calvary Chapel come from. This is the reality of the history of their movement where they camp come from. Calvary Chapel is a cousin to the message. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> it's it's really sad because there were a lot of people involved with all of this stuff that really had good intentions, but they were manipulated to believe very bad things, very wrong things. So you can't say everybody, even the ministers who were bringing some of these very heretical doctrines, you can't say that their heart was impure. They they really tried to do what was right. But you've got this group of men that were just seated with very, very bad people who unfortunately were listened to because the latter reign had no checks and balances. So like you, I, I don't you know, I don't have anything negative to say, but this this whole thing was part of a much broader movement. So Calvary Chapel is one of the largest charismatic organizations today. Um, I, I believe they have at least 1,500 churches, maybe more than that. So that that's one group. Um, so eventually, by the late 1970s, Paul Kane reemerged from wherever he was and whatever he was doing. And he got involved with Mike Bickle in Kansas City. Um, I think it's Kansas City, Missouri. It could be Kansas City, Kansas. I think it's Kansas City, Missouri. Um, I guess I should have looked that up. (laughs) I'll just say Kansas City. How about that? They're both one and the same. (laughs) Yeah, they're different sides of the border, right? I mean, they're right there. So anyways, they're they're in Kansas City. Um, And they, they start a group that becomes known as the Kansas City Prophets. And it's hard to overstate how influential the Kansas City Prophets were among the charismatic movement. The the Kansas City Prophets are generally credited with starting the third wave of Pentecostalism, right? So if, you know, the first wave is Azusa Street, the second wave kicked off by William Branham, the healing revivals, the third wave was kicked off by the Kansas City Prophets, okay? And Paul Kane was the most senior figure among those men. Uh, he was kind of like the old, experienced old hand for the younger prophets to learn from, right? He was a kind of a godfather in some way figure to the whole thing. And the other prophets <laughs> were deeply influenced by Paul Kane. You're laughing because of the Arizona stuff, right? <laughs> um, and- <laughs> no, I'm actually laughing because Pentecostalism had this weird, this weird thing. <clears throat> I recently came from a church that was giving me how this history worked, but... The Pentecostal movement, you had the Azusa Street Revival, which if you go back and look at it, you had like you, you had spiritualists and you had occultists who were in this thing. It, it was such a weird conglomeration of people. But 
once that ended and it started spreading throughout the United States, anybody who was there at the Azusa Street Revival, they were seen as the godfathers, right? And whatever they said, it didn't matter what they said. They would take it as doctrine and it would enter into the Pentecostal faith. It doesn't even matter if this person is a Christian or not, as long as they're there and pretended to be Christian. Well, then William Branham dies, William Branham who created the second wave. Well, Paul Cain is the godfather who was there. He was William Branham's mouthpiece, and he starts the third wave of Pentecostalism. Well, he gets this he gets this superiority among all of the others because he's the mouthpiece to Branham. And think of his rank among the entire group of men in the in the healing revivals. I can guarantee you every one of those other men were like, wait a minute, Paul Cain, who is he? Why why is he this new leader? Well, Paul Cain's the guy that rose up, and he rose up because of his connection to William Branham. Paul Cain is to the Kansas City Prophets what F.F. Bosworth was to the uh, healing revival. Right. Okay. He's the old hand from the old days transmitting the stuff. So he's the he's the bridge. He's the conduit, right, that pulls the ideas into the next generation of of, of the movement. And so many of the those other prophets were deeply influenced by Paul Cain. And a lot of what Mike Bickle and Bill Hammond and the other men implemented was in large part guided and influenced by Paul Cain. And whether they fully understood it or not, I don't know. It's it's possible they didn't know. But Paul Cain was teaching them things he had picked up from William Branham and the Latter Rain Movement. Absolutely. And, you know, when I listened to Paul Cain's recordings in the 1980s and 1990s, when all that stuff was in full swing, Paul Cain was teaching them pure Latter Rain manifested sons of God ideas, fivefold ministry ideas, positive confession ideas, right? He's teaching them all the core distinctives of the Latter Rain. Yeah. And then as the Kansas City prophets dispersed and their influence went far and wide with them, they just spread these latter rain ideas everywhere. They just went far and wide. And a lot of people in these movements, I think, might just be totally unaware of the history of their beliefs. I mean, I think that's probably <laughs> the truth. But ideologically, these guys are all cousins to the message. In a lot of ways, they're the message minus William Branham. And their teachings and practices are very similar um, to the larger message sex, right? I mean, if if we just didn't talk about William Branham, I'm sure we'd all get along just fine, right? Um, we, we would we would generally be compatible in almost every other way. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of funny when you step back from it because William Branham was so purely evil that even while <laughs> while these men are together, they're trying to distance themselves from him, but they can't because he's the guy that everybody's coming to see. He's the entertainment, right? And they're wanting to get away from this guy because they realize he's not, he doesn't even know the Bible and he's hes preaching, so, which is really odd when you think about it. And they try to separate themselves, but they can't. And so after he dies, they all try to disconnect as though that, that never happened. <laughs> Don't look behind the curtain at the guy that created our movements. That never happened. Let's just erase it. So one of the figures from the Kansas City Prophets was a man named John Wimber, and he was a key figure in the Vineyard Movement. And the Vineyard Movement is where the Toronto Blessing happened. So, you know, if you know, probably our, most of our listeners have heard about that. And the Vineyard Movement 
I think they might be the largest group of charismatic churches in the world today. Um, I could be mistaken, but they're they're right there with with the largest group. I would say they've got thousands of churches globally, and they're even larger than the Message. Um, they're and they're in some ways a branch out of Calvary Chapel. In some ways, you could kind of classify the Vineyard movement as Calvary Chapel with a dash of Kansas City Prophets added in, right? They're more ecstatic in their worship. There's more emphasis on those gifts of the Spirit. And the stuff I would say that Calvary Chapel reformed out, the Vineyard Movement has that in spades. I'll put it that way. And so, um, and another group besides them that came out of the Kansas City Prophets was, a, a, it's called the International House of Prayer. And that was started by Mike Bickle. And I think it's fair to say Mike Bickle was the leader of the Kansas City Prophets. He's actually the one who discovered that uh, Paul Kane was visiting homosexual prostitutes. <laughs> uh, and you got the International House of Pancakes and the International House of Fruitcakes. <laughs> the IHOP actually sued them. International House of Pancakes actually sued them yeah, uh, over. Yeah, so funny stuff. But. The International House of Prayer is very influential today. They're, they're still very influential today. Um, and then the last group coming out of this I want to mention, there's more than, than we're talking about, but the last group is the Christian International Apostolic Network. And that was started by Bill Hammond, who was another one of the Kansas City prophets. And that movement has built a global network of apostles and prophets who are probably the most intense group, I'll use the word intense, to come out of the Kansas City Prophets. Uh, they they embrace variations of the manifested sons of God ideas, fivefold ministry ideas, word of faith ideas, positive confession ideas. Most of the core of the things that we believed in the message uh, exist in all their groups in a slightly evolved form. And Paul Kane was the bridge for transmitting those ideas to those men. Yeah. I mean, you look back at how all of these groups came together and came to be. And you can find traces of William Branham's quote-unquote message through all of them. And when you look, when you take that timeline forward, it's really hard to believe that it still exists and how widespread it is. Because elements of, <laughs> of the very wrong things that William Branham introduced into Christianity have just kind of it's like this big pane of glass that just shattered and splintered and went into infected the rest of the church. And not everybody is aware of where this history came from. And so you'll find very, very good Christian groups that actually spread the gospel that have reformed and they've, they've become somewhat stable, but they have the roots in this. And so unfortunately you may sit through a sermon and you may hear, very, very good gospel preaching with just this little seed of something that came from the latter rain revivals. You know, I really wonder when Mike Bickle discovered that Paul Kane was visiting the homosexual prostitutes, um, did it ever run through their mind that maybe that guy had been tricking them all along and they shouldn't, they should probably go back and cut out all the stuff that he taught them? <laughs> you know, do you think that ever ran through their mind? Um, I don't think it did. Um, they basically threw Paul Kane to the curb and then kept, kept all of the stuff that he taught them in practice. I guess they were too far along at that point. I don't know. Um, it, it's, it's something else. There's this pattern that emerges that 
we, we've discussed it on the show before. There is a point of time in which everybody knows the thing that they later denounce or deny. They all know it, but it isn't until the public opinion is swayed against whoever is involved that they step out and say, yeah, we knew this was wrong and we separated from it. And then they separate. You've got William Branham, who's touring, whose campaign manager is homosexual, openly homosexual. The guy, you know, we've talked about Furry Ron Blumberg. You've got Gene and Leo who are following William Branham around everywhere who are homosexual. You've got all these homosexuals in this movement. They all knew it. And here's Paul Kane, who's homosexual, sleeping with homosexual prostitutes, who is William Branham's mouthpiece. These men had to have known it, but I think it wasn't until until the public opinion swayed against Paul Kane that they stood up and said, yes, this is wrong. We must stand against it firmly. But I think they all knew. And, you know, you take a step back and you just look at the whole thing is show business. They're okay with it as long as people are paying the money and people are coming to see them. But the moment in which everybody says, oh, my gosh, Paul Kane is homosexual and we as Christians can't have this, that's the point when they separate. So then you have to ask the question, well, are they truly Christian? Do they truly believe what they're saying? Or did they just separate because now the people have found out about this thing? Yeah, you know, I, I can totally see Paul Kane tricking them. <laughs> I mean, I can totally see him, you know, putting the, you know, the, the, the sheepskin on and tricking them, you know, when they didn't fully realize where the stuff was coming from necessarily that they taught him, you know, and so I can see that being true. But at a certain point, they all became aware of who and what Paul Kane was. Um, and, you know, I, I suspect they did what a number of people do and say, well, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so they threw out Paul Kane and then they kept all of the ideology rather than stop to think that maybe this is a clue that something's wrong with some of this ideology, right? And so they, 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 they rejected just the figure and maybe trimmed around the edges a little bit, but they kept the core of what Paul Kane taught them and they, they're carrying it on today. And so it's dangerous. I'm, I'm scared for those people, John. I, I really am. Like I don't have, I don't know a single one of them and I don't have a bad thing to say about any of them, but I, I worry for them. I'm, I have just a genuine concern in my heart for them because um, those combination of doctrines that they taught them is a very dangerous combination of beliefs. Um, fivefold ministry, manifested sons of God, positive confession, those contain all of the essential elements to produce a destructive cult, right? And it doesn't seem like they've taken the reformative route after they discovered these things, right? Um, maybe more like Calvary Chapel has. They've, they've, continued on down the road with some of these things but they've through fivefold ministry they've got the authoritarian leadership structure through manifested sons of god they've got the carrot on the stick they're chasing and through positive confession type beliefs they've got the brainwashing thought control techniques right so they've got everything they need to a dangerous person can take over and something very bad can happen right so they the same as in the message they have the core elements of doctrine that allow the creation of uh a terrible destructive cult. Like you said, it's dangerous. You have people who have good intentions, who I think if they could kind of deprogram a bit, they'd probably be okay and they would probably reform. <clears throat> and 
they keep somewhat safe, but the problem is it's like a train without rails. The moment that person passes away or steps down and some crazy nut job gets involved, well, he's got the insanity in his head, plus he's got the means to create a destructive cult, and that combination is what explodes into a new cult, new splinter group. And that's how we see time and time again these splinter groups of the message form. And Bethel, you know, there's there's a lot of talk about Bethel out there. Um, Bethel is deeply influenced by these Kansas City prophet guys. Uh, and you hear people talk about the New Apostolic Reformation and the NAR. So the seeds, the seeds for that are right here in the third wave of Pentecostalism. The New Apostolic Reformation can be directly connected back to the Kansas City prophets, to directly connected back to the shepherding movement, um, directly connected back to the Word of Faith movement. And from there, it's very easy to connect these dots right back to William Branham and the Latter Rain movement. So yeah. the New Apostolic Reformation is a child of the Charismatic movement, and a grandchild of the latter rain movement, right? It's just another iteration of the same ideology with a new flavor and a new spin on it. Yeah. When you look at Paul Kane as the father of this new ap- new apostolic reformation mess, well William Branham is the go- is the grandfather because Paul Kane was William Branham's mouthpiece. And you know, like you said, it's just it's so fascinating to think of all the intricate details of how they emerged and evolved and cross-pollinated. But at its core, at its foundation, was this, you know, this purely evil thing that you, you showed me the article from T.L. Osborne the other day talking about, you know, when when this wonderful thing began. And it, what was the date? It was like he said 1944, I think, is whenever this wonderful thing we have now began. Well, he is actually pointing back to the rise of William Branham's, one of his versions of stage persona. Yeah, it, it's something else. And when you when you step back and you you compare things, there's inconsistencies and and people who don't study this closely maybe don't pick up the inconsistencies but like you take paul kane's testimony of things that he says something's off something the dates don't add up right something's off in there you know um and then compare to william branham or maybe to tl osborne version even the kenneth hague the the dates don't line up right they're either remembering things wrong right (laughs) or they're twisting facts right in order to to, to fit an agenda. But yeah, there, there's definitely, and Pentecostalism in general is guilty of this, a mythologizing the history of all of this, right? Yeah. They have, they, these movements are very heavily founded upon certain concepts of their mythologized history, right? Yeah. They're, so, not all of their authority derives from scripture. A, a fair part of their authority derives from, um, modern supernatural events and maintaining the mythology around those modern supernatural events is critical to these guys maintaining their movement because if you take that away then then their in their minds their ideology breaks in a key way because they're not really founded in a way that's entirely bible based right there so which is in and of itself most people would say is a problem but that, that actually goes to the heart of all of this stuff, right? I mean, that's why when we say maybe the things we do about William Branham, that the message cracks up because they have to have this mythology around William Branham to justify their beliefs, right? 
I mean, just believe in the Bible and believe in Jesus isn't enough, right? So their belief is founded on things that simply are not in the Bible. And so these mythologies have to exist to justify these belief systems. And it's really part of the extra-biblical um, things that justify their existence and their belief systems. And they really have a hard time, too, because, I mean, think about this. You, Jesus and the 12 disciples. You had 12 disciples who were, you know, 11 of them were really good men. And then you had one that was there to basically betray Jesus. You don't find, you, you find ministries that emerged from the 12 disciples, from the 11 disciples, that grew into blossoming churches, all you know, spread across the world. That's how Christianity spread. You don't find too many churches of Judas. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, you've got this post-World War II healing revival. There were some really genuinely good men that were involved. I'm not saying that they had right theology. I'm not saying that I agree with everything they said, but the men themselves were genuinely good Christian men in whatever way they were deceived to be part of this thing. There were some good people in it. But then you had William Branham, who we've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt was lying through his teeth, connected to white supremacy group, I mean, connected to so many evil things. He was the Judas among the bunch. And all of these groups were built on top of William Branham. So what do you do with that? You can't say that I'm the second church of Judas. <laughs> you have to you have to basically uplift the guy. Well, look at the New Apostolic Reformation. You've got all of these men in the New Apostolic Reformation that say William Branham had the greatest gift of discernment ever. And they don't tell you about all the plants and all the fakes and all the mistakes where the discernment failed. They don't tell you about the failed healings where William Branham said, thus saith the Lord, you're healed, and then they died or, you know, they weren't healed. They literally have to take the Judas among them and say, this Judas is the best Judas ever. And that's what they did with William Branham and his ministry. And Charles, it's really scary because that's what created the new apostolic reformation. Yeah. What, what underpins the, I will say the ones that are the scariest theologically, I'll say the scariest theologically, the scariest in their thinking are the ones who um, the message is, is in this category. They they don't think Jesus can save you, right? At, right? at the root of it, right? They they no longer believe, I can believe in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. I'm saved. I'm going to make it. They, they've, they've introduced these concepts that, okay, Jesus died, and that's got me here, but I've got to get myself into this end day state. You know, I've got to reach the stature of a perfect man. I've got to reach a manifested son of God. There's these things that we as a church have to do in order to then be able to receive the rapture, to receive the end of day scenario, right? And they all have just different little spins on that, but their whole focus is not Jesus died for you. You're saved. They're Jesus died for you. That's not enough. You now need to do all these other things in order to uh, make it into the end of day scenario, right? And so that that's what they all do. And a lot of them, um, it is this last day revival concept where, which flowed out of manifested sons of God, where they're all trying to get into these supernatural gift states where they can go about and do these special things that'll bring on the end of days or reach this special lifestyle that, that's gonna, you know, let it all happen. All of this, this though, that, that concept flowed out a latter rain. And that's what all of these groups are chasing. They're chasing their 
their interpretation of this thing that Latter Rain set up that they need to pursue to bring on the end of days, right? And it takes different shapes, it takes different forms, and at the heart of it, though, at the very heart of it is, is even though maybe it's not directly expressed, it's the, it's the belief that Jesus dying on the cross wasn't enough to save them and get them through the tribulation or get them through the end of day scenario and into heaven. Yeah. There's something they have got to do in order to finally make it into heaven, right? And so, it it ultimately denies the sufficiency um, of Christ a lot of these beliefs when you actually take the time to analyze it. And that's probably the most theological <laughs> statement I've made <laughs> since we've done this podcast, but there you go. Well, I mean, literally, if you follow their doctrines out to their logical conclusion, these guys become the mediator between God and man, which is anti-biblical. They, they present themselves as though... You have to believe what they say. You have to believe in them. William Branham said the, <laughs> the message and the messenger are one, and you, you can't be saved without listening to the messenger. In other words, unless you listen to me, you're not going to heaven. So these men are creating mediators between God and man. And what's really bad is, like you said, they when it doesn't happen, whatever prophecy, whatever prediction they have, well, then they have to go to the next one and the next one. And they try to bring themselves into the state of perfection that can never be achieved while they're human. And that's the same thing that happened in the early Christianity with Gnosticism. And there's so many similarities between the Gnostics and this thing that <laughs> emerged from the latter reign. There were Gnostic groups that died out because they would try to achieve this state of perfection and one group would say, well, we're not going to have sex anymore because sex is evil. <laughs> well, that group died out because they, they didn't produce any offspring. So you've got this weird thing in their heads, and it's very, very destructive. Right. It, it's, it's this pursuit of these things they think they need to do for the end time scenario that becomes their driving focus, whether it's signs, wonders, miracles, empowerments of the Holy Spirit, whether it's whatever flavor of the manifested sons of God stuff is, they, that, that becomes their whole focus. And, and then they, of course, have predictions. This is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And then as each one doesn't happen, right? They get more radical and more yeah. radical, and then they spiritualize what was supposed to happen, and at each iteration, they take one more step into radicalness and radicalness and radicalness, um, and that's why it takes time. It takes time for these groups to turn into these terrible, destructive cults, right? Because it, it takes a process of time of of just running through these iterations of failed prophecies, of failed things, to gradually radicalize them, Um their minds to, to bring them into these states. And so you, you take these groups and you look at the average one, once they get 20, 30 and 40 years old, you look at the message. It, it is, it gets scary as time goes on in these groups. Yeah, it is really scary. I mean, if you were to ask me, is any one of these groups going to move to South America and drink cyanide lace Kool-Aid? Well, I don't know. I mean, each one of these groups could, whenever you have, a doomsday theology and your doomsday scenario fails, whether it's political leader A or country invading another country B, whenever that doesn't bring the quote unquote rapture, well, now you have to go to the next one. And many times whenever they create these doomsday scenarios, the burden of being saved is on the shoulders of the people. It's not 
on the work that Jesus did on the cross. You have to save yourselves by doing this thing that we say is going to make you more holy. Well, that weight gets heavier and heavier and heavier with time. And you get, I mean, we've talked about it sadly. There are many people in these cults that commit suicide because they can't take the weight of the burdens that are placed on their shoulders. It is a very destructive thing that these men are doing. Right. And John, we could talk for hours about these things, couldn't we? (laughs) Maybe as we... (laughs) As we start to wrap this episode up, uh, I hope we've shown our listeners how to connect the new apostolic reformation back to the latter rain movement through Paul Kane, through Tommy Osborne, right? Through these figures, there's, there's very clear, easy paths to connect word of faith and the large charismatic denominations back to latter rain and William Branham. I mean, it, it, it's just there for anybody who wants to look at it. And there's so much stuff we've left out of here today. I mean, let me refer you back to this little diagram if you want to maybe get a high-level overview of how some of these groups are interrelated. Um, there's so much stuff we've left out here. I mean, we could honestly do a, a multiple episodes on every single movement on that diagram. Uh, we've already done some of these. If you want to go back to uh, our earlier episodes, we've touched on a lot of these things already. Um, if you want another good source, I'll point you to uh, The New Charismatics by Michael Moriarty. This is a really good book. Um, you can find some corroborating information of the things we've talked about here today. I really like the way that this book is wrote. It's, it's really well researched, and it's really focused on how this ideology evolved over time. So, so check out this book if you'd like to learn more about the things we talked about today. And for me, what interests me is how the ideology evolved and turned into, you know, what we have today. To me, that's, that's what has drove my interest in looking at all of these things. Not necessarily the, all the other aspects, but, uh, how this ideology came to be, how it evolved over time, where it came from, um, and the patterns we can see in it. Yeah. Don't take our word for it. You can easily, <laughs> what we research, you can research too. It all is out there. I mean, the the problem that I think a lot of people have is each one of these splinter groups has denied its own history. And if you ask any of the leaders in this, they're going to say, no, we did not descend from William Branham. That guy went off the rails and he was evil. And the problem is, if you take their theology, you're going to find its roots in William Branham's extra-biblical theology. So without question, these groups emerge from it. And like Charles said, we could talk for hours and hours about the different splinter groups. We're just literally skimming the surface of what was created from this thing. So if you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming.